Hello, everyone. This is Kevin Padula, the creator and host of the Story of Rhode Island podcast. Um, what you're about to listen to is the first of what I hope will be many conversations with Rhode Island historians or, or people who are helping others to better understand Rhode Island history. So this discussion is with Dr. David Weed, and he's from the Soams Heritage Area Project, which he'll tell you a little bit more about in a minute. During the conversation, we're going to cover four primary topics. Um, it's all going to be based around the Poconocet tribe, whose home was located in the Bristol Warren, Rhode Island area. We'll look at what their life looked like before the arrival of Europeans. We'll look at their interactions with some of the first English settlers, like the pilgrims of Plymouth Colony, and then the early Rhode Islanders as well, um, like Roger Williams, of course. And then we'll wrap it up by discussing Metacom's Rebellion, something that's more commonly referred to as King Philip's War. What exactly was the, the Poconocets role in that? And then how did it affect their people um, and their tribe following the conflict? So I hope you enjoy this. And without further ado, here we go. All right. So, Dr. Weed, thank you so much. Or as you said, I should call you, David, for, for being on the podcast. Um, the work you're doing with the Solomon's Heritage Area has been super impactful and a really like critical part of the research that I'm doing for the Story of Rhode Island podcast. So thank you so much for being here um, to kick it off. If you don't mind, I'd love you to just tell a little bit um, about yourself to, to my listeners and what you're working on with the Solomon's Heritage Area project. Sure, Kevin. Uh, I'd be happy to, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, I've, I've been working for the past six years on a project uh, to create a new national heritage area across five communities in Massachusetts and uh, uh, from uh, Providence to Bristol and uh, four communities in Massachusetts, Rehoboth, Seacock, Somerset, and Swansea. Uh, the national heritage areas are living, working landscapes that honor the important role of a region in our country's development and celebrate its contributions to American history and culture. I first began getting into the early history of this region when the Massasoit Usamequin, who welcomed the pilgrims in 1621, was reburied behind my house in 2017. I'll tell you more about that later. I've since learned everything I could about the amazing history of that area that was called Soams and have gotten to know today's Poconoka tribe, the descendants of Usamequin, who live nearby. In the process, I've created an extensive website at SoamsHeritageArea.org. It's a 501 nonprofit corporation and have obtained grants to support a feasibility study. So our hope is to have the National Park Service agree that this area has a story of national significance that needs to be told and have the U.S. Congress fund the project. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I think uh, the work you've been doing has been super important. And I know that I spend a lot of time on your website looking at all the information you have. So I'd really stress if anyone's listening to take a look at the the Soams Heritage Area website, because it's it's really interesting, all the information that's on there. Um, 
I want to move into painting the picture of Eastern Rhode Island, where the Poconokets primarily lived before the arrival of English colonists. The, the reason I want to focus on that is because when I was doing my research for the podcast, I was, I was really shocked to see how large those communities were and then how long they had lived, lived in the area for. Um, one of the stats that I saw was like by 1600, there were 70,000 to 100,000 people in New England. That's um, right. Yeah, yeah. And one of those, of course, being the Poconoke people who lived in eastern Rhode Island and then um, eventually moving into southeastern Massachusetts as well. So tell me a little bit about how long people have inhabited the Bristol County area for and what type of archaeological evidence we've we've uncovered about them. Well, I'm, I'm not an archaeologist, but I've looked into what is available online. And so far, the earliest archaeological evidence for human occupation in southern New England is at the sands of the Blackstone site in Uxbridge, which is just over the uh, uh, Massachusetts border. Um, it was radiocarbon dated at 11,990, uh, plus or minus 60 years. But basically, what we're talking about is 12,000 years ago. Wow. Uh, there was considerable variation across time and space in, in the way that prehistoric people of the region organized their subsistence activities. But it appears that the coast was uh, occupied by relatively large groups throughout the year, mm -hmm. often without the benefit of uh, maize or, or horticulture. In other words, they... They hunted and gathered rather than uh, stayed mm. in one place and raised crops. But uh, other than that, uh, the absence of written records uh, uh, doesn't give us a clue uh, as to what else went on at that time. Yeah. So is there any other information or like um, like details we have about what maybe life would have, liked, would have looked like for the Poconoke people before the arrival of Europeans? Well, uh, over the last few centuries, uh, uh, we understand that uh, the settlement system was heading toward uh, the pattern that uh, the colonists found in 1600, in which major uh, nucleated vill villages were located mm -hmm. on main streams, often at the head of estuaries, mm -hmm. uh, uh, where smaller satellite sites such as uh, shell midden served as a special purpose camp. Uh, mm. the, the, the unfortunate aspect of the late uh, prehistoric settlement pattern is that the large central village sites were virtually all located at the very places most favored by European settlers. Mm. So they've long since been buried and covered over with buildings and pavement. And uh, few, if any, of these important sites have survived well enough to yield much information through excavation. Mostly what we find is when there's some kind of a road construction or um, housing or building construction, and uh, there, uh, we dig down uh, several feet and discover uh, things that we didn't know were there. Mm. Yeah, like Burr's Hill yep. and uh, Warren, yeah. Um, and so when when I think of like, the, the land that make, now makes up Rhode Island before the arrival of Europeans. I not only think of the, the Poconokets in the east, um, like the Bristol County area, but then also, of course, the, the Narragansett people to the west of Narragansett Bay. And I found it interesting how they had such a, a rivalry going on, and it seems like they were butting heads a lot. So 
what do we know about the history of that rivalry and, and maybe even how it came about? Well, we really have no recorded history of both tribes before the arrival of the colonists, so we can only speculate. But the geography of Narragansett Bay suggests that the Narragansetts and the Niantics and the Pequots in today's southern Rhode Island and Connecticut remained uh, physically separated from the Poconocuts, who were situated on the northeastern shore of the bay in a 10-mile-wide region known as Psalms. Uh, so the, really, Narragansett Bay, bay uh, kept the two uh, different tribes apart. Mm. Uh, the, the great leader Osamequin, who lived here, organized over 60 bands, tribes, and clans to the east, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, into a single nation. Mm. That the Narragansetts, led by Canonicus and Miantonomi, were interested in taking over Osamequin's territory when his tribes were greatly weakened in the great dying of 1616-1619, mm. is suggested by... Uh, there, the recorded gesture of sending uh, arrowheads wrapped in a snakeskin yeah. uh, when Plymouth was negotiating a peace treaty with Osamequin. And of course, uh, the snakeskin was returned with gunpowder and shot uh, <laughs> to communicate to the Narragansetts that they weren't welcome to move east. And yeah. several years later, attempts uh, by the Narragansetts to move into Osamequin's land were rebuffed by the English uh, under Miles Standish's leadership. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, basically you have two large populations. Um, each, uh, well, I, I would say the, the Narragansetts were more interested in moving into the Psalms area than mm -hmm. vice versa, uh, largely because this is, uh, this is the best place to live in, in New England. <laughs> <I'm convinced. laughs> Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, you brought up something interesting there where there was that time period in 1616 to 1619 called the Great Dying, uh, where we see this like just hugely deadly epidemic um, uh, hit the, the East Coast of New England. So um, tell us a little about like what that is exactly and, and what event, what, what caused it and how it affected the, the Poconocan people. Sure. It, uh, again, what we know is only from English written accounts, but it's clear, it's clear from uh, reports that were recorded that a large number of indigenous people were wiped out by one or more uh, infectious diseases starting in 1616. Hmm. The prevailing theory is that those diseases were carried by French traders along the main coast and the infection spread rapidly to the south killing up to as much as 90% of the coastal tribes. Um, could have been yellow fever, smallpox, plague, chickenpox, trichinosis, but the most recent theory is that it was an outbreak of leptospirosis, uh, or possibly a combination of several diseases. But in any case, the indigenous people had no resistance and quickly succumbed. Mm. And also without their understanding the nature of infections, their response was to gather closely around uh, each victim in their dying hours, mm. but then increase the spread of the disease. Yeah. So this population loss, of course, left the Poconoke Nation vulnerable to invasion by the Narragansetts, who were seemingly unaffected by the pandemic west of Narragansett Bay. Mm. Uh, so 
only the Poconocets, uh, 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 they lost their warriors, their elders, and their collective histories, as well as the, their faith in their spiritual leaders who were unable to heal the sick and dying. So, mm -hmm. you know, we we get concerned by losing a, a million people in the COVID pandemic, but imagine losing 90% of the American population. I mean, just totally devastating. Yeah. The effect on like the, the psyche of the people must have been astronomical. And then when you see that the English are not being effective, affected, it must like automatically put something in your mind where they have a, a more powerful God or, or something about them that is superior to us. So you can see how that creates like a, a concern or a, a fear of the English as well. Um, yep. Yeah. So that's of course brought on unknowingly by, by European colonists. Um, and, and it's a disease that the indigenous people have no, um, immunity to. So they start dying in great numbers, but one of the other groups of European colonists that come over to America are of course the, the radical group of Protestants known as separatists. And they settle in an area that the Poconocet people knew as Patuxet, um, what we know as Plymouth today. And I've always found it really interesting because they set, settle in December of 1620, but it's not until the following year in the spring where the Poconocets, Massasoit, Osamequin goes over and approaches them and, and finally develops that relationship with them. So can you tell my listeners a little, bit, a little bit about why he was so hesitant to approach them, but then finally what inspired him to, to go over there and meet them? Sure. Well, again, we have no written records of Osamequin's thought process, so we're only sure. left with speculation. Yeah. But uh, some theories are that uh, he feared the English could bring more disease to unleash on the tribes. In, mm -hmm. in fact, they, they thought the English kept the disease in a box, and mm -hmm. all they had to do was open it, and uh, the tribes would be uh, devastated. But given that uh, the English arrived with women and children, uh, they posed less of a threat. And uh, up to half of the English died during that first winter, uh, thus reducing uh, the threat. So they were being observed by the Poconocet people uh, in those uh, first four months. Uh, but also knowing that they had guns and cannons, Osamequin saw that an alliance could help to even the balance of power with the Narragansetts. So on the he chose the vernal equinox. That's not uh, just uh, uh, by happenstance. Uh, the, the, that was a spiritually important date, mm. and he sent Tisquantum or Squanto, who could speak English, to a, a, arrange a first meeting. Actually, um, he had Somerset, Somerset uh, go first. He his English wasn't as good, but mm. Tisquantum. Uh, had lived in England for a number of years, so he could easily communicate with them. And Bradford and Winslow's later descriptions indicated that the alliance was easily arranged as both sides could see a clear benefit. Uh, they came up with a six-point no-harm agreement that held for the next 50 years, just before uh, mm. until the start of the uh, King Philip's War. Mm. Yeah, you brought up Squana there. Uh, for listeners, if you want to, hear about an interesting life tale look up the story of Tisquantum or also known as Squantum he was believe, kidnapped twice and then brought to Spain and then uh, made it to London and made it back and everything so pretty 
pretty incredible story there. If you want right. to dive in, fascinating, right? Yeah, yeah. It's also tragic though because he comes back and sees the the Patuxet people, the tribe he was a part of, completely wiped out. So, um, which was part of the sixteen dying. But anyway, so the the pilgrims and um, the Poconokets have that relationship. It's going on for a couple of years, and then there's this famous event that we know as Thanksgiving today and that happens in in fall of 1623. So tell us a little oh, bit about 1621. It was the next year. Oh, oh okay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about what we know took place that day. Like what, it, what are historical facts that we're aware of? Well, certainly what happened there was nothing like what we were taught in school. <laughs> uh, the, the event likely occurred in October, not November. Um, mm. as the, and it was probably a typical English harvest fest to give thanks for the successful harvest that they had. Um, mm. Usamequin and his 90 warriors were not issued an invitation, <laughs> but were likely hunting in the area and heard gunfire from the colonists who were out hunting fowl for their feast. Mm. Uh, so the tribe joined them, and they remained for three days, and they brought in five deer to add to the larder. Um, this wasn't a religious event for the English, which would have been marked by fasting and prayer, mm. but it did indicate that there was a large degree of trust between the two groups, which lasted for a substantial period of time. Uh, it wasn't until the arrival of over a thousand Puritans to the north in 1630 that the gradual erosion of that trust due to unjust land deeds and attempts at religious conversion uh, began to change things. Uh, good segue. You brought up the, the Puritans. Um, one of the people that came over with them who was actually a separatist is, of course, Roger Williams, um, perhaps my favorite historical figure. So he comes to America. He has his issues with Massachusetts and Plymouth. And then he eventually gets banned in uh, the winter of 1635, makes a run for it in 1636 when he realizes uh, some troops are coming for him because he, he couldn't shut up about religious freedom. So what do we know about Roger Williams' relationship with the, the Poconoke people? Well, that's important. Um, uh, Williams left London with his wife in December of 1630. Uh, and that was really part of the great migration of English uh, who brought over a thousand people here, uh, most of whom regarded the Church of England as corrupt. Um, about 20,000 settlers would leave England for New England between 1630 and 1640. So it was a huge migration, often called the Great Migration. Williams arrives in Boston in February and heads to Plymouth, where he gets to know Usamequin and learns his language. Uh, Williams was excellent at learning other languages. And after three years, he took a position as a teacher in the Salem Church, just north of Boston. But his dangerous ideas of separating religious and political authority were not popular. Mm. And uh, he was threatened, as you say, by, by the church authorities in October, the expulsion back to England. Before they could capture him in January of 1636, he escaped walked over 60 miles in freezing cold weather and snow in search of Usamequin uh, mm. to his south. And suffering from exposure, he's found by the Poconokets and taken into their winter settlement next to Margaret's Rock uh, in today's Swansea, where he's mm. nursed back to health over 14 weeks. 
Hmm. So uh, in April, uh, after that period of time, Usamequin suggests that he go to a place near uh, a spring at Omega Pond along the shore of the Seekonk River in today's East Providence. Hmm. Uh, uh, that site is is marked today, but very few people know about it. Yeah. Uh, but in June, as his corp, crops, his corn, it's just beginning to sprout. Um, Ed Winslow orders him to cross the river because he's in Plymouth Colony land. <laughs> so negotiating with the Narragansett chief Canonicus, who Williams got to know, uh, he be, uh, uh, he he enters what is today Providence and settles along the east shore of the Meshasic River and um, advocates that all colonists purchase their land from local tribal authorities. Yeah. So we have uh, the Poconokets and Osamequin to thank for saving Roger Williams' life and then the Narragansetts to thank for allowing him to, to found Providence. Right. Yeah. Um, so then we have Roger Williams founding Providence in 1636, but we also have some other religious outcasts coming into um, the Narragansett Bay Area, uh, which is mostly Narragansett territory. And they purchased the island of Aquidneck, found Portsmouth and Newport. And the what ends up being the colony of Rhode Island really starts to, to develop. Um, I hear a lot about the relationship between the Poconoket people in Plymouth and Massachusetts. But what did the relationship look like between the Poconoket people and those early Rhode Islanders? What did that look like? Well, uh, uh, since, first of all, there were no colonists known to be living in today's Rhode Island before uh, William Blackston, who came a year before uh, Roger Williams in yep. 1635. Uh, and given that uh, Williams uh, spent time in Plymouth before moving to Salem, uh, one can assume that he was on good terms with Osamequin and his people over that time. But we really don't have anything recorded uh, uh, the interaction between Usamequin and Williams. Williams does not write about the Poconokets other than uh, his relationship with Usamequin. Mm -hmm. But it can be assumed that Williams continued to be on good terms uh, and the positive relationship only ended during King Philip's War when Williams sided with the colonial authorities uh, at the end of the war and advocated uh, sending uh, surviving Poconocut warriors into slavery in Barbados. But remember, it was the Narragansetts who burned William's settlement in Providence and mm. not uh, Medicom's uh, Poconocuts. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I'm curious because we've started to dive into the, the world of Medicom's Rebellion, which um, starts in the summer of 1675. And by the way, Medicom's Rebellion for listeners is also known as King Philip's War. Um, and it's it's incredible how devastating the event is. Not, not only are thousands of English colonists killed in English towns and there is livestock destroyed, but in Schultz's book about King Philip's War, I think he says like 15% of the indigenous population in New England is killed throughout the war. So it's it's really like an amazingly devastating event that isn't discussed too much today. Um, before we dive into it a little bit more, can you tell the, the listeners who Medicom or is the English call him King Philip is or who he was and, and why the rebellion is named after him? Sure. Yeah, uh, I know to, uh, oftentimes people wonder uh, which English king King Philip was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it's confusing. I understand. 
Uh, Medicom, or what he was really named as Poe Metacomet, um, was the younger son of the Massasoit Usamequin. His older brother, Wamsada, uh, took over leadership of the Poconoket Nation when his father died in 1661. Mm -hmm. uh, both request, both Wamsada and Metacom requested English names and were given Alexander and Philip uh, as English names, thinking it would raise their status in English eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, a year after Usamequin's death, Wamsada was called to Plymouth to answer charges that he was planning a war with the English. He denied it, but on his return to Somes, he died of unknown causes, and his younger brother, Medicom, suspected that he was poisoned. So Medicom, uh, the younger of, of the two sons, becomes the Massasoit, a role for which he was not prepared as a young man. Uh, but he began to be referred to as King Philip to place him on an equal footing with the English king, King Charles, who ruled over the colonists. So that was a way of uh, having equivalent status. Mm -hmm. uh, Philip attempted to maintain positive relationships with the English, but his people were treated unjustly on more and more occasions. And he began to reach out to the Nipbuck and Pecumtuck tribes to advocate for war against the colonists. Mm -hmm. He was always seen as the instigator of the war, but other tribal leaders had long advocated for war as well. What they all wanted was to drive the English back to England, uh, to fearing that if they didn't, they would end up with no country of their own. Mm. Can you dive into the that uh, part you were mentioning about some of the tensions between the Poconoket people and the, the Plymouth colonies, uh, the Plymouth colonists, and, and go into a little bit more detail about how it eventually led up to, to Metacom's Rebellion, or is it also known King Philip's War? Sure. There's an awful lot that's been written about it, but just very briefly, the basis of the conflicts essentially boiled down to greed over land. While land was sold and deeds were signed, indigenous people did not understand that this meant that they had lost all of their rights to travel, hunt, or raise crops on land that was sold. Um, mm -hmm. They didn't grow up with the idea of private property. But as English families had more and more children, their need for new land grew exponentially. Mm. Uh, furthermore, the English would leave, let their cows and pigs freely graze, including on indigenous gardens. And the English expected that the gardens would be fenced uh, by the Poconokets to keep the animals out. But the Poconokets wanted the English to fence their animals in to keep them away from their gardens. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot of uh, disagreement and there's a lot of recorded court activity about that. Hmm. Just prior to the outbreak of the war, three Native men were accused of murdering a praying Indian minister, John Sassamon, uh, up near Lakeville. Rather than turning the case over to the tribe to settle, as had been agreed in the 1621 treaty, the English tried the accused, found them guilty, and hung them. Within weeks, the first salvo of the war occurred in Swansea, when an English farm was burned and its cattle killed. Uh, the war quickly spread from Swansea into Dartmouth, and then all the way up to Deerfield in northwestern Massachusetts, before it drew to a close 14 months later with the death of Philip at mm. Mount Hope in today's Bristol. Mm. So it started in the Bristol Warren area and then 
for all intents and purposes, ended in that area as well. Correct. Yeah. And one thing that's important to note that shocked me when when learning about um, Metacons Rebellion is how how well the indigenous people were performing during the early parts of the war. Because like if you look at Rhode Island in March of, of uh, 1676, Wickford, Warwick, Providence, um, what's now East Providence, are essentially all destroyed. And you see Rhode Island colonists fleeing Rhode Island, taking up uh, refuge on Aquidneck. And uh, that's going on throughout New England as well. I mean, towns are just absolutely being destroyed by the indigenous warriors. But eventually the English come out on top um, and it, it turns into a, a pretty devastating ending for the Poconoket people. So can you tell the, the listeners a little bit about what happens to the Poconoket people when the when the war finally ends? Yeah, well, you're you're absolutely right. It, it looked for a while of. Uh... Up until let's say December of 1675, that the the tribes uh, were going to uh, achieve their objective. They burned mm-hmm. over 25 uh, English villages, and people had not only moved to uh, Aquidneck Island uh, or back to Boston. Some of them went back to England. Uh, wow. They really thought that uh, this was the end, wow. and uh, it wasn't until. Um, uh, the following spring, when the tribes began to run out of food, remember the war started right in June, uh, so they couldn't even harvest their first crops, and mm. then uh, began to run out of shot and ammunition, um, mm. which they had acquired from both the English and the Dutch. Uh, but um, things began to really go south uh, by that following spring. Um, well over half of the indigenous people had died in the war, uh, and as many as 3,000 by some estimates, uh, mm-hmm. with an estimated 800 English uh, deaths. So uh, that war really remains the bloodiest war per capita on North American soil, even mm-hmm. though it's rarely mentioned. Of those men who survived, if they were not uh, of the indigenous, uh, the tribal people, if they were not killed outright, most were sold into chattel slavery in the Caribbean islands. Uh, Surviving women and children were reclassified as indentured servants for generations, which was essentially identical to slavery in all but name. Mm. The Okanokets were unable to speak their language uh, or even identify as being Poconokut. Uh, so they had to go into hiding. After the large, uh, after the war, large numbers were sent into a, a reservation in Chetucket, Connecticut, where they were overseen by Uncas, who abused them. Mm. Only after a century were they permitted to move back into Rhode Island, and many moved to Providence in the nineteenth uh, and twentieth centuries in search of work. Uh, they often passed as non-native, saying they were Portuguese or black. And Mm -hmm. when they first began to emerge in the 20th century under Princess Red Wing, they called themselves Wampanoag. Mm -hmm. It's only in this century if Poconokets began to reclaim their name and have dropped the Wampanoag designation. The the tribe now numbers over 300, uh, and they gather several times a year in their original homeland of Psalms. Uh, I was just uh, with them at their uh, uh, June uh, Strawberry Moon uh, Thanksgiving. in early August, they hold a uh, public uh, Heritage Day event at Burrs Hill Park in Warren, uh, the site of the Massasoit's Usamequin's burial. Uh, so people are certainly welcome to come there. This will be on August 6th 
this year, and uh, it's a great chance to get to know the Poconoka tribe. Nice. That that's really neat. And um, one of the things I I'd want to state for my listeners is how when I was working on um, creating some of the scripts for the episodes, I was close to. Uh, when discussing the indigenous people of Rhode Island, calling the Poconoke people Wampanoag, because that's what you see in a lot of history books. It's actually, it's pretty frequent in history books, so it's almost easy to miss. But um, the the work you're doing with the Solomon's Heritage Area site led me to find out that it's actually the the name Poconoke um, before King Philip's War, and it was only after the war where they were forced to adopt the name Wampanoag. So um, really interesting there. Uh, w- what I'd love to end on is. Um, where the Poconoke tribe stands today, what what do they look like? How big is their tribe? Um, and why is it important that we study and understand their history? Well, absolutely. And the uh, the quick answer is uh, the Poconoke tribal members look like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> you might pass them in the grocery store and never know they're Poconoke unless you ask them. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, it, this notion that uh, Indians are supposed to look like Indians, you know, that's ridiculous. Mm. Uh, they don't walk around in regalia every day. Uh, they have families, they have jobs, the children attend school, and they contribute to the community just like everybody else. Mm. They're proud of their heritage, and on special occasions, they do wear their regalia and tell their story to the general public. But but their, their job every day isn't explaining who they are. Mm. <laughs> You know, they're just leading their lives. Uh, you could see pictures and video of some of them uh, at these occasions by going to the Soames Heritage Area website. And uh, there's a, a link uh, at the top of every page to Poconoke. At the, and uh, if you uh, look at uh, uh, what opens up on that, you'll see uh, a number of the, the times that they've done public presentations. You can also click on the events page in the menu and look for past or upcoming events that uh, feature the tribe. Um, we feel like the, the more people learn about this remarkable tribe, their history, their culture, the more they'll appreciate that it was their welcoming attitude mm. first permitted the English colonists to survive and eventually thrive in New England. Yep. So the tribe remains a proud and thankful people who everyone should get to know and this podcast, I hope, will encourage more people to do just that. Perfect. Great way to end it. Um, Dave, I, I honestly really appreciate you joining the podcast today. Um, once again, everyone, if you want to uh, have a better understanding of the history of Soams, which makes up um, eastern Rhode Island and then also parts of southeastern Massachusetts as well, if you want to better understand the Poconoke people and their history, Uh, I highly suggest looking at the Soams Heritage Area website. So, uh, Dave, thank you so much for your time today and uh, really appreciate all the insight you've provided. Well, thank you, Kevin, for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Story of Rhode Island. 
If you are enjoying the podcast, please be sure to leave a review and to follow the podcast as well. If you'd like to learn more about today's episode and others as well, you can visit storyofrhodeisland.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Story of Rhode Island or on Facebook at the Story of Rhode Island Podcast. Thank you again and see you next time.